Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and I'm joined today for the first time by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Very good, thank you, John. Two days, two days in, three days in, three, three days three in, days, three days. Got through the night, IT hell. Yes, just. <laughs> um, Megan Boxall, how are you doing, Megan? I'm very good, thank you. Excellent. Uh, you've had a nice holiday, like I, I have. I'm actually not very good. I'm still slightly depressed. Sitting holiday, but, depressed yeah. from being out of Suffolk. I am, yes, and I'm thinking about what I was doing this time last week. Yeah, well, yeah. I've too. already run you through day to day of Suffolk. So. Thank you very much. And over the control room, uh, Alex Newman. So uh, as Phil joins us in the office, Alex, you're leaving us. Yeah, he's uh, kicking me out in a way. Is he having your chair? Oh, that's a point. Oh, the scramble begins. The scramble begins, yes. Yeah, so Alex, you're off to Spain, but you're going to continue working for the magazine. Yes. Covering oil and gas yeah. and, uh, and mining, which we're going to talk about today. Yeah. In fact, I think mining is probably a good place to start because there's been quite a few results this week. Yeah, it remains busy and we're not even into the AIM mining season, which the half-year reporting calendars is slightly pushed back for the smaller end of the market. So um, there's going to be a flurry, I imagine, uh, towards the end of September as well. I can't wait. Uh, but this week we've had South 32, which yeah. is a reasonably big player. Yeah, they are They are, They are. are really big. They're kind of... Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked about them being the un, one of the underdogs of the uh, large diversified miners. I think they've... Because they, they were spun out of BHP, they've always been sort of seen in the, in the shadow of the really, really big... Uh, giants and also they were spun out of bhp sort of with with the view that they're the assets they had were the, the kind of the secondary unwanted uh unwanted commodities that bhp wasn't going to going to focus on but that, yeah. they've actually held up pretty well so. yeah there wasn't a lot of love for this company when it was spun out no. and I, I got a friend who works out uh, for bhp out in the in the u.s and they were given south 32 shares <laughs> and uh, i think they felt it was something not worth having but yeah. they've done all right actually yeah they i mean it's a, a very interesting time so they floated in 2015 that was there was still a little bit to go before the commodities you know route really really hit which it sort of bottomed at the beginning of 2016 but my view on south 32 has been for the last couple of years i mean it's not quite as it's not as they're not as spectacular in, in some of their their plans or they don't have quite the quality of assets of um of for example a, a rio tinto or or a bhp but that said, they were they were sort of forged in the depths of the commodity market, and it's it's given them some at least their strategic outlook is, is quite conservative in some ways. That's I think you know they've it's it's ended up they've been ahead of the game and ahead of some of their their larger peers. So, so what is their approach? I mean, what are they doing that kind of is, is allowing them to, to to deliver? I mean, decent dividends for yeah. one thing. Yeah, good dividends. So, and they you know they started the the buyback trail ahead of uh, you know ahead of uh, uh, Rio Tinto. They've also invested. They've also started in, in investing ahead of, of some of their peers. So, if you look at Rio BHP, they're still divesting a lot of their assets. South Thirty Two is is already thinking about the next stretch of their of their growth. So, they've they bought this uh, asset, Arizona Mining, uh, this year. At the time, some analysts were, were saying that you know it's slightly toppy valuation. They paid something like fifty percent premium for the company. But I mean, at some point they and their peers are going to have to invest in the future. I mean, at the moment, one of the criticisms I think you could level against Rio Tinto is that they're just, it's just a fire sale almost of their of their uh, assets. And, you know, it's good that they're out of coal, for example, but questions do remain over whether the next leg of, of growth is going to come. And what, what uh, particular commodities is South32 focused on? So they are, so they're, they're big in alumina and aluminium and uh, manganese. And actually this the, the the last couple of years, one of the the big stories in in the commodity world is the world of, of of metals is that um, steel still has held up very very well, and you know a lot of the uh, commodities commodities they supply 
play into that that narrative. Also, uh, coking coal as well. They have these um, these these high quality uh, assets in Australia. So, uh, in many ways, they've um, they've survived the you know they've survived the brunt of of you know the copper price hit in in recent months. And uh, and yeah, they're, you know they're they're very conservative in how they manage their capital. Uh, I think in some ways they are they're unloved, but uh, undeservedly undeservedly so compared to some of their giant peers. So we're saying buy. Yeah, we've we've said it's a sort of income themed buy for the last uh, couple of yeah last couple of years. Okay, uh, you mentioned that Rio Tinto is in disposal mode. Yes. Um, another result this week, Anglo Pacific is 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 kind of a beneficiary of that trend. Yeah, a nice segue in there. They um, so Anglo Pacific is a mining royalty company. It's quite quite interesting there's not many mining royalty companies which don't focus on either silver or, or gold uh worldwide they've been a benefit from rio tinto's disposable program in, in two ways first the, the the kestrel mine which rio tinto sold earlier this year um the new owners are planning to double production which uh will essentially mean a much higher royalty take for anglo pacific they they have um a, a royalty on a tenement which is currently being mined at the Kestrel mine, so they're essentially buying stakes in in these companies. Yeah, so they, they they'll either take a uh, like a net smelter uh, a royalty, or they or just a revenue a, a bulk revenue royalty. So generally, the way they do business is they will look to buy something ahead of cash in two years ahead of cash flows coming, and then get the the sort of dividend upside then, which then they they then pass on to their shareholders. And the, sec- and the second way they may be benefiting from Rio Tinto's disposal program is that Rio recently flagged that they may want to sell their Canadian iron ore business. And Anglo-Pacific has just acquired a stake in another royalty company based in Canada, which has a royalty on this iron ore business. The valuation, which some have already ascribed to uh, a potential IPO of Rio Tinto's Canadian iron ore business is far in excess of the the, the amount they paid for the uh, the shares in this uh, in this sort of uh, flow through royalty business. So another potential uh, benefit for Anglo Pacific. Well, the result the results look nice. It appears to be working, and yeah. uh, and we're positive. Yeah, we are we are positive. Now you know one of the attractive things I think you know if you're interested in getting some sort of some commodity exposure uh, uh, is that they don't have any of or a lot less of the mining risk. That, that comes with um, similar companies of their size. And if you're interested in getting exposure to commodities and a dividend, they, I think, are a better play than, uh, than you know, many, many of the companies in the space. Okay. Well, let's, let's go quickly to the, uh, to the news section. Uh, yeah. You've written an interesting piece here this week. It's a company that I haven't heard us write about for a long, long time. In fact, this was the first company we ever did a video on. Oh, really? Yeah, Martin Lee went out to uh, Kyrgyzstan yeah. and, and took some, some footage, which I turned into a little video. Um, Charat Gold. Yeah. yeah still well, going. Still going, still not producing anything yet. I mean, this um, is, we're talking like seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is an interesting company. They have a sort of all-star board. One of their NEDs is a former Goldman Sachs global commodities head. Their chief executive now is... The former chief chief executive of Ian Plus Group, former advisors to the Russian government on their privatisation, so they've always promised a lot, and you know they they continue to refer to themselves as as the next leading emerging markets gold company. You know that uh, obviously they're in uh, in a uh, good company there because lots of small gold companies refer to themselves in in similar terms. Mm. Um, but yeah, they've you know they finally look like they're about to start producing, and they are. Um, they are planning to raise a hundred up to a hundred million dollars uh, by way of a convert- convertible debt 
issuance um, that's going to go some way to buying this unnamed asset in in a in a, in a former soviet republic um yeah, i mean that sounds dubious <laughs> oh yeah if that's yeah i mean that's uh, often the charge leveled against anyone doing business in uh in you know former soviet republics but I'm slightly less. Well, if you can, I always think if you compare compare some gold companies in in Russia or the former Soviet states to to Africa, I think the risk premium is often quite a bit quite a bit uh, higher for for Russian stocks. I mean, there are there are reasons for that, but um, but I, I think sometimes unduly unduly so. We'll have to wait to be seen with uh, with Sharat Gold, though. I mean, there's not enough in what they've announced so far to, um, I think, for shareholders to take a proper view on. Um, so, we'll, yeah. we'll have to dig that video out again. You'll have to go. You'll have to get out there, Alex. Yeah, you're a roving reporter. Well, Spain no. is a little bit closer to Kyrgyzstan. Actually, maybe it isn't. I'm not no, sure. probably not. No, it's still miles away, and you have to drive over a mountain to get there. Yeah, which yeah. looked terrifying. I, 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 the footage was terrifying. Yeah, wow. Martin Lee, intrepid Martin Lee. <laughs> um, Megan, let's uh, let's turn to you. Thank you, Alex. Your big result this week was IQE. Mm. Now, IQE is a fascinating company because this has been a... I know it's one that you've uh, got a view on, Phil. You've got a view on it, well, too. I, just, um, I don't understand it. <laughs> this is my problem with it as well. But, I mean, the share price has been... It, it, it rocketed yeah, up a couple of years back. And, uh, and then it started to come down yeah. with a bump. People, what on earth is going on? People have got very excited about IQE in the last few years because they may or may not have a contract with Apple. They do have a contract with Apple, but they can't say they have a contract. It's not actually with Apple, it's with the supplier which provides Apple's, well, the iPhone's face recognition software. It's, it's, well, I mean, they make wafers. And yeah. wafers are kind of the building blocks of chips. Yeah, so they're a teeny weeny component of a chip which makes one part of of a mobile phone work. And they've done this for such a long time. It's, it's not like this is a new technology. IQE has been around for a very, very long time. And in that time, it's done nothing apart from last year when it was able to say that it had a big new contract with a facial recognition Mm. company. And with only one mobile phone on the market using facial recognition, it was pretty clear that that was an Apple product, which was very exciting. I I I don't quite understand why. I mean, facial recognition is a bit of software. They're a bit of hardware. And I kind of... my. I've reached the limits of my technological understanding as to why their technology is so important for facial recognition. Well, there is hardware is important for facial recognition the does speed, rely on the, a piece of hardware. The speed at which you can do the processing, yeah, yeah, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it does rely on that on that chunk of hardware which is made by IQE. And but there are other companies out there which can do this. IQE says it's the best. But if it says it's the best and it's been around for 25 years, why is it still building out its manufacturing plant? This is what I don't understand about this company. I mean, what I will say is it's not a small company. I mean, it is, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's a big company. It's 780 million market cap, even after the shares have come off quite a bit. Yeah. It's doing 70 million turnover at the half year, which is which is a pretty chunky mm-hmm. pretty chunky amount of revenue. So, so there, is, there is something here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just it's how you value it. It's not a complete blue sky situation. But the problem I have with this company is that it, it got all these this massive following. Who, I mean, a lot of them did not like our analysis in the uh, in the winter time this year. They, there were some incredibly aggressive comments on our article because people were really passionate about this company for a little while, but then it seems to have died off a bit now that actually people have come to realise that yes, this does have a, an exciting piece of technology, but there are other companies which have it too, and it, the numbers were fine. 
but they don't justify 31 times forward indeed, earnings. Indeed, indeed. There is a limit to, to, to how much you should value this company yeah. at. I mean, Phil, I know you've got, we, we spoke earlier, but, you know, what we see sometimes in the market when it comes to these, it, what, you know, companies with an exciting story and how they get ramped. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are a lot of story stocks out there and it's like, let's have the sort of instant gratification from owning it straight away and sort of get rich quick type attitude and then let's see what happens that's the way you know some of these stocks tend to pan out you know it's like buy the story and then see if the story stacks up later on i, th- I think what megan's alluding to there which i think is quite interesting is that that, that yeah it's the story that's being brought into and when you start to probe into that into the, the, the veracity of that story it upsets people I just think with this company, I mean, it's, I've not looked at it as as much as as Megan or others have, but you know what I have looked at is, you know, you need to be pretty savvy to sort of get to the bottom of what's going on with this company, and not just in terms of what it does, but where the numbers are moving around, particularly things like the cash flow statement. I mean, the cash flows of this company seem to be all over the place, and that always always can be a potential red flag that something perhaps is not what it should be. Um, and again, you know, you come back to the valuation, you know, look at the valuations being put on it. You know, any share that's got you know, a multiple of more than 30 times earning, you know, you're paying for a lot up front. Yeah. And, and actually, um, in fact, quickly turning to Algie Hall's stock screen this week, which is about, um, he calls them British disruptors. Yeah. But, but, but among them are some very, very, uh, well, I mean, what would you say? Blue sky companies. Yeah. But there, there is something there, but, but the, the valuations being asked in the mirror are extraordinary. Yeah. Blue Prism is one of them that we've looked at quite a bit. But Blue Prism, I, I get the Blue Prism story more than I get IQE. I mean, I still don't get Blue Prism. But it's still a story. It's, the, it's a story which is, this is a futuristic technology which we're not using at the moment. What IQE is doing is something that has been done in the world for quite a long time. Hardware, chips, wafers, semiconductors. This technology has been around for a while and there are a lot of companies which are a lot bigger than IQE which can do it as well. I guess the point is people get excited if there's the the whiff of a contract with someone like Apple. With Apple, yeah. And, I mean, I would argue that that can be slightly concerning. There's a history of companies in the UK which have been buckled by contracts with Apple. Imagination. Imagination. And their reliance on one contract, I don't think that's a good thing. Although saying that, these numbers did show that actually they're not as reliant on Apple as as we may have feared. They do have partnerships with a lot of other companies. They're saying that this photonics, which is what it's called, it's using visual to, to create technology, is is a rapidly growing market. And it could be very exciting. And there's a lot of people in that field now, not just Apple. But I still think that, I mean... So we're kind of neutral. We're neutral. We're, well, uh, we're on the fence here. I mean, I'm negative. I'm, our, our hold is like hold off. Weak hold. It's not hold on. It, it's We've said sell. We've said get out of this. And we said sell at the top. Um, it was actually Alex who made the call. We, we had a very good buy tip. And, and we said sell. And since then we've said don't jump back in because... We rode the story, and now the story is is over. Mm. So it's still just the same, boring, steady as she goes. Which shouldn't be. If you're a tech company, you shouldn't be steady as she goes. You should be doing cool stuff. You need the building blocks. I think. I think it's a nice a nice company. I just think people get carried away with these stories sometimes. They've got carried away for sure over the last couple of years. Um, 
But then there were also the short sellers came in as well, and there were all these questions about its accounting. And I agree with Phil, it's it, it's very hard to read what's going on at IQE, which is why I think people got a bit sensitive about what was going on, because the accounts are really, really tough to wade through, which also I don't think is a great sign. And not for a smaller company. It, it's not It's not a great sign. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's something untoward going on. No. But I think I think one of the things that's disappointed shareholders in this company or potential investors i think they want the company to be you know to come out and be more up front and say look this is why it's happening this is why the numbers are what they are and i think that yeah they've tried to do that but maybe they haven't gone far enough mm. whether that's because they don't want to reveal anything you know from a competitive point of view i don't know but it just doesn't tend to sit well yeah, it is one of those funny industries where, where often things are not revealed to, yeah. to investors because of commercial I think there's so many interest. layers of contract as well. They've got this contract with someone who is supplying Apple. They may not even be supplying Apple, their contract. Their contract may be with someone else who then is supplying Apple. There what? may be so many layers of contract in there. Well, that makes that kind of makes sense because I yeah. thought Apple doesn't make chips No, yet. it doesn't. It doesn't and, make and chips. therefore, if it was... So there's definitely at least one layer between IQE and Apple. Um, but how many layers that is, I, I don't know. And... So I, I can see why they can't be that transparent, but also they could make their accounting clearer and it's not clear at all. It's mm. very jumpy all over the page and it, it's not easy to read. No. Well, that's why we've got you here now, Phil, because because you are an expert at getting, getting beneath the skin of accounts. That's kind uh, of what you do. Uh, I try to. You try don't, to. Don't always, you're, you're get, too don't modest, always get it right, but I try. You're too modest. Well, I mean, you've, you've written a book about, about how you do this. Yeah. Um, and, and presumably uh, buying into exciting stories is not your number one piece of advice. <laughs> um, I mean, that, you know, I think the whole thing about this investing game is that there are several ways that you can try and make money. I'm, and I don't think, you know, I think you've, it's all about finding one that works for you. And, um, you know, my kind of way is looking at stuff which you can have more confidence in because because the companies are, you know, they've been around for a longer period of time, they've delivered, they've proven, and hopefully they can keep on doing that. They've got more to give. And it's it's all about, you know, like everything, it's all about trading off, you know, risk and reward. You know, you can buy early-stage companies uh, for what look like very high valuations, and they can make you a lot of money, but they can also lose you a lot of money. Yeah, I know, this is one I've personally always struggled with. Something like Fever Tree is a great example. Yeah, I, I mean, when that when that first hit the scenes, you know, hit our radar, I was kind of like, really, tonic, um, and I and I was so wrong. But you know, because, but also there was no track record to really go on at that point. But uh, so I, I much prefer the kind of whole boring approach. But I will be losing out on these mega gains that yeah, Fevertree uh, investors would have got. Uh, Fevertree, you know, you look at look at Fevertree, and it is it is an outstanding business. You know, from you know, from the product it sells, you know that people like the product. Um, it's tapping into a into a, a theme of premiumization of of spirits. And, you know, you look at the numbers, uh, the profitability, it doesn't inv- need to invest a lot of money, and it, it makes stonking big profits. So, 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 that, I mean, so your book is called How to Pick Quality Shares. Yeah. And so Fevertree is a quality share. It's a quality business. A quality business. Okay. Right. Qualify. Uh, um, it, it's a quality business in that it makes something – that somebody that somebody wants it differentiates itself from the competition and it's growing and it's turning those three characteristics into 
real money, real returns for, for the business. And so that ticks, you know, that ticks the sort of most important box, you know, when I'm looking at a company is, you know, is this a good business? I mean, Fever Tree ticks that box, you know, hands down. And I think the the issue that you know, me and lots of other people who have so far been on the wrong side of the of the trade is just just the valuation the market has um, put on its shares. Um, very very high valuation. It is essentially a classic example of what is known as a as a momentum share. Mm. Um, it release releases results. They come out. The management say things are going a bit better or a lot better than what we thought and the share price keeps going up and you know you get these kind of shares where when they're in a sort of environment like this where the 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 trading environment is so good then almost the valuation of the shares is is of very little importance you know they the, the story the trading performance is supersedes everything and people buy into it and they buy into this momentum trade and you know, hats off to people who've done that. They've exploited that trend really well, and they've they've made a lot of money. The problem you get with a company like this is that sooner or later the fundamentals catch up with it. You know, when you're on such a high high valuation, um, you have to keep delivering, and if you don't deliver, then the market is incredibly brutal. And I think you know, for for Fever Tree to keep delivering, if you look at you know, dig down deeper. I mean. My book goes into a lot of numbers, but you know it's about actually understanding the business behind the numbers. You know, you look at Fever Tree going forward, and it's like, okay, how how does this company keep delivering? And mainly, it's about convincing American spirits drinkers to put fever, not only put tonic water in their gin, but perhaps instead of putting Coke or Pepsi in their bourbon, to put Fever Tree Coke and cola in their bourbon, and that's. That could be quite tough. Yeah, I, I think that's something that echoes what we said on the podcast yeah. a few weeks back. Well, we? we were saying as well, encourage Americans to drink gin in the first place because we weren't sure if they actually ever drunk gin. It's all the bur- it's all the dark spirits. Yeah. But then and- the point Julia made was that that actually gin, although it is a very you know quintessentially British drink, it wasn't as it wasn't the kind of trendy drink that that it is now, even sort of three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. So, and her view was that Fever Tree has almost created that market. Yeah. So. So there is something incredibly skillful about what they've yeah. done. Yeah, fantastic branding. Yeah, amazing. Mar- I, I yeah. just can't think of anything that's done better in the last well, few years. I think years. one it's of the amazing. founders is a, is, a, is a marketing guy, isn't he? Yeah, Tim Warrillow. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, and he's done that brilliantly. Yeah. Uh, th- from the very beginning, though, because I was, I was working as an analyst when they IPO'd, and from the very beginning of the IPO, they created this story about how they travelled the world, sourcing their ingredients, and... Yeah, I mean, in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, they've got a great holiday out of this business. But actually, it created this image of a really premium brand, which clearly has worked. Yeah, I think I think the other thing as well, which is obviously the bit, the big unknown, and it sort of feeds back. You know, when you get these businesses that are that are so so good, so profitable, it's going back to sort of textbook type stuff. But you know, it attracts these sort of things attract competition. And you think, oh, these guys are making big fat profits selling tonic. Oh, maybe I should make some tonic as well. And when, you know, when you're selling something that's what getting on close for what three fifty, four quid a liter in your local corner shop, and you've got sweeps down the other end, which is like you know a pound twenty five, 
you've got plenty of room in the middle to come in. And I, and I think the thing the thing about this, and this is what I say, you know, it's about getting behind why these companies are so profitable. Is that the thing about one of the things that Fe- by Fever Tree has been so successful and its profits so good? It's because it outsources its production mm. to independent bottlers, distributors. Somebody else can do that. And you know, if you look at the history of of drinks, um, you know, when I first started out as an analyst, long time ago. Um, one of the things I looked at was um, was Bass Bass Brewers, which morphed into Mitchells and Butlers and Intercontinental Hotels, and this is when Hooch Lemonade and Hooch Alco Pops. I remember was, it well. Was, I drank an enormous amount. Yeah, of- <laughs> and they were a massive, massive part of um, of Bass Brewers profits, and nobody drinks them now. I'm not going to say that tonic's going to go the same way because I don't think it will, but. I think one of the whole things about about investing is you you know you invest in a company and you just have to keep watching it. You have to try and keep what's going on with the market to see something which currently looks good can can stay good. Well, especially it's something that's been driven by a trend and, and a change in a in a trend. Um, I mean, you know, I look at I look at Fever Tree. We talk about Fever Tree a lot on this podcast. Mm, Maybe we're a bit so obsessed with though. gin um, uh, and tonic, <laughs> that's of fair. course. I'm more obsessed with the gin yeah. than the tonic, but there you go. But, but Schweppes, I mean, Schweppes. Uh, my brother runs uh, a bar. Yeah, uh, and obviously Fever Tree is what everyone wants, but Schweppes are fighting back. Schweppes is a big company. Schweppes have the firepower to do that, and I and I, I fully agree with the point that you make about there's a lot of ground in the middle for someone to come into. And uh, what you know, uh, in terms of the cover feature written by Todd Wedding, uh, who we both know, yeah, yeah, good old Todd, uh, is he talks about moats a lot? Something Warren Buffett also mm-hmm. is a big fan of. What is Fever Tree's moat? I think it's in it's in it's in the branding. It has done a very very good job and i mean you know brands are one of the biggest examples of a moat and it's but they're, got, not, they're not the strongest moats because somebody else can come come along well, with some see. great branding no one no one's come along yet yeah but i mean what they've done is you know they've got inside particularly in the uk they've got inside the minds of premium drinkers craft gin drinkers saying look this is your drink of choice mm. And they've done that really well. Now, I think what, one of the things that surprises me is that you know Schweppes and the firepower that they've they've got, they seem to have been incredibly slow off the mark in actually going after that. Mm. Um, you know, which makes you think, you know, what's going on? Um, and I think I think Schweppes' fight back's been pretty weak actually. So far, it has. I, tr- I tried their new one. Was it seventeen something, seventeen eighty three or something? Is it? And it's you know same price, same sort of stuff as as Fever Tree. And I, see, I, still, I still maintain I'm more more interested in the gin. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I, but, I, gin but you know, but gin, you know, gin's another thing. I mean, you know, what what's what's premium about gin when you know? It's, I can see you know where's the barrier, <laughs> where's the barrier to entry <laughs> no, in craft gin? You know, well that's true. There are a lot of craft gins. I, I made some gin. Did you? Oh, the Adams well, I was, factory. I, did, I went to the Adams uh, nice. distillery. Made myself they have so many different types of gin. They launched a new one while I was there. It's not that many. This is the thing, though. And I always thought there was one gin. Gin. You can. It's all about you know, botanicals. We could probably <laughs> knock up a gin in the kitchen in the afternoon if we were had of some skill. But couldn't sell it though. No, couldn't sell it. But it's uh, and again, that's, that's key. But you know, it's not like premium Scotch that you have to lay down for 10, 10 12 years. It's. It's quicker. It's quicker to market. 
It's a fair point, and, and that's why we've got you on Ballfield, because, you know, you, you were a pubs analyst at one point, weren't you? Long time ago, yeah. Long time ago. Like everything. Yeah. yeah. What else did you cover as an analyst? Um, I've done quite a lot. I mean, I, I started off at pubs, hotels, uh, transport, and I did utilities for a bit. And that was in my sort of first two or three years. I was more of a sort of general analyst. And then when I got my job in the city, I did, uh, I did transport, bus rail, ports, car rental companies. I did food retail for a bit. And then spent the last sort of half of my career doing small, medium engineering, support services type companies. So quite, quite varied. Indeed, and you wrote some pieces for us, actually. Um, So when you were at Sharepad, which is where you've been before you were here, you wrote some some pieces for us where you were there. Obviously a lot of pieces for them, but uh, you you wrote uh, Outsource was a good one you did for us. I think uh, Carillium is the one that sticks in my mind from that. I've got stick for that on your web pages. You got stick for it? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we got the stick later when it went bust. But you called it. Um, I don't know whether whether I I called it, but I I, I think hopefully what you could see... And I think one of the things I, you know, one of the things I liked, you know, my my aim, I think, is to show, particularly private investors, that you can, with a little bit of effort, and if you've got very very basic math skills, that you can pick up these things. You know, you could you can look at, you could have looked at something like Carillion's cash flow statement, and you could have done a calculation quite quickly to realise that this business wasn't producing the cash to pay its dividend mm. and that the only way it was paying it was selling off stakes in public private partnerships equity stakes in public private partners and they run out I and mean, interestingly the year after most of those have sold off there's a problem and it's not you know it's not trying to be wise with hindsight i think that this this is the problem of of the kind of the industry that we work in it is it is very story based um, it's universally bullish, and if you're a naysayer, you get lots of muck thrown at you. Mm. Um, but I think you know the key. The key thing is, is that if you're, you know, if you are an investor, then what's going to see you right over the long run is avoiding big blowups in your portfolio because they are very, very hard to recover from. So it's not just about picking picking good shares; it's about it's about avoiding the bad stuff as well. In fact, it's even more important to avoid the bad stuff. Yeah, so you're going to be writing a weekly column for us. Yeah. Amongst other things. But what sort of stuff are going to be for? Got any thoughts yet? We yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, carry on a lot of... I mean, for those people who, who sort of know what I do, I'll be keeping a lot of this theme of identifying good businesses, looking at trends within those types of companies, I think one one particular thing that I find interesting at the moment is how how high the valuation is of a lot of these perceived quality shares. So I think that's a sort of sneak preview to what I'm going to be writing next week. And then you know, uh, looking at looking at um, individual companies and also things like techniques, educational stuff that the private investor can use to hopefully make better investment decisions. Yeah, looking forward to it. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. Um, before we sign off, let's uh, let's quickly talk about your second feature. Uh, we alluded to the, the the cover feature, which is as said uh, written by Todd on mm-hmm. uh, digital moats. Uh, but you wrote uh, the next 
instalment of our Finding the Cure series. Mm-hmm. God, we must have done loads now, haven't we? Yeah, I think we've done seven. Is it seven? Mm. This one, now, we talked about IQE as something we struggle to get our heads around. Gene therapy. I mean, I get it more than... Uh, you get this more than IQE. I do get it more than IQE, <laughs> but I do appreciate that a lot of people don't. It is just so mind-boggling. The thing I find mind-boggling is how these ideas come up out in the first place. The thing that's really hot in gene therapy at the moment is something called CRISPR. And this is something that it's it's a couple of people really in this whole world have thought, right, I think there's bacteria who can do something really cool with virus and they can snip it all apart and and they use that to fight disease. So I think we'll use that in human therapy. That is just phenomenal science. So this is taking taking out bad DNA, putting in good DNA. Yeah, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, the bottom line—that's what it is. And that, yeah, it's incredible that it can be done so quickly and with such fantastic results as well. It, it is. It really is the future of medicine. Commercially, it's not quite yet, there yet. Though. Yeah, th- this is the interesting thing. So, so this sounds great. This is, this sounds like we are genuinely, genuinely at something where finding the cure is exactly what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's going through clinical trials quite quickly, from mm-hmm. the sound of things. Perhaps too quickly for some people's liking. Yeah. Um, and this all sounds great, mm-hmm. but there is a, there is a downside, yeah. which is if you cure a disease, you don't have that aftermarket for for lifelong medicine. Exactly, and that's what the problem is. The market for pharmaceuticals has become so big because if you give preventative medicine you're treating patients throughout their life and if you get diagnosed with asthma that could be 50 years of treatment that you're getting from someone if you cure their asthma that is one treatment that's it that's all the money you're getting from that patient and that's not a great business model so curing disease actually is not great for pharmaceutical companies which is shocking it's awful it's a shocking thing to think about it's a horrible thing to think about (laughs) But it is the problem with with business medicine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a very interesting chart that you've got here, which is uh, the the revenues of two leading gene therapies. The only two. Commercial. The only two. Yeah. And the revenues of a uh, it's it's a respiratory. It's an asthma treatment. treatment. An yeah, asthma yeah. treatment. Uh, so it's GSK's newest asthma treatment. It's called Nucala. It's been it's been commercial. It's been on the shelves for the same amount of time as these two gene therapies have, and. I mean, we were having a discussion earlier in the week about how we put this chart together because you can't, you can barely see one of the drug ve- revenues on the chart compared to Nucala because it's so much bigger. And this is despite the fact that these treatments, these these gene therapies, the, I mean, they're sold for, in, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars per yeah. treatment. So the one that has the lowest revenue, it's a cure for blindness. It's a genetic form of blindness. And it costs $475,000 per eye. And I mean, you want both eyes done. So you're paying almost a million pounds for your sight mm. to restore your sight. I don't have that. No. Pretty- and very few people do. Yeah, I'll have some of that. <laughs> <laughs> Cough up. Um, so, yeah. so, so, I guess, so I guess the thing, the thing here is, you know, how do you make these mass market without destroying the, the pharmaceutical the, industry? Exactly, this is the question the R&D. no one knows the answer to at the moment. And this is why these companies are having to put massive price tags on their drugs, because if they're only going to be used once, you have to recoup the cost of R&D somehow. And the only way they're doing that is by making them so expensive. But then it also means that not very many people can actually buy them. And the NHS isn't going to prescribe them. I mean, I know the UK is a much smaller market compared to the US, but insurers aren't covering them it literally has to be out of your own pocket and that's not how the healthcare industry has evolved in the last 
100 years. It sounds like disruption. Yeah, it is. It's massively disruptive to how the healthcare industry is and how it operates at the moment. And it's one of the reasons why there are so many problems around drug pricing in America at the moment. It's also another thing that's adding to the NHS conundrum and universal healthcare and how are we going to provide everyone with curative treatments which cost nearly a million pounds. I guess it's also one reason why we're struggling in some respects with with the the large pharma companies in the UK. You know, are they worth investing in anymore? Um, It's it's a really... I'm finding it a really difficult question because we have have very few big pharma companies. We have a lot of mid-sized pharma companies, but we really only have two global giants. And they've both kind of become these global giants because... Pharma was a defensive stock and it was a fantastic company to invest in for dividends. But now both GSK and AstraZeneca are really high-risk companies because, well, especially AstraZeneca, they're relying so heavily on a few treatments in the future. And it's just not nearly as reliable as as pharmaceuticals used to be. Mm. I guess the same is true of a lot of... We wrote about it recently, defensive. uh, You know, what's what's a defensive share anymore? One of the things I always sort of, you know, in a very sort of simplistic view with these with these drug companies is, are they worth sort of more dead than alive type thing that, you know, they're investing all this money and their payoff is, is so uncertain that actually, are they poten- potentially worth more if they just stopped investing completely and just ran the patents off? I and mean, that's always been a discussion that, you know, has been had. And obviously, that's not the image that, that the companies want want to portray, but there is you know huge amounts of cash flow going into these um, into the into research and development, and whether whether that's going to pay off is you know is very very uncertain. And it's you know, and the point that was touched on a few minutes ago, has the customer, whether it be an individual or the government, got the cash to pay for it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well. I, I think we'll be pondering that question yeah. for, uh, for years But to there come. are a few companies in the UK that you can get access to gene therapy, to the future of medicine, and we've, we've picked those out in the article. So all hope is not lost in pharmaceutical investing in the UK. And just think about these companies, that they don't have any, any kind of legacy business to protect either, so they no. can just go for it. Yeah, exactly. Which is quite interesting. And some of them are going for it really, really hard as well, and they're spending an awful lot of money, but it's all very exciting. Yes, indeed it is. Okay, we're running up against the clock now. Uh, So thank you, Phil, and welcome to the Investors Chronicle. Uh, Thank you, Megan, and thank you, Alex, and farewell. Good luck in Spain. What else have we got in the magazine this week? We have a sector focus on the travel and leisure industry, which is quite interesting, given that everyone will be coming back for their summer holidays now. Or not, as the case may be. Yes, Megan, you put a sad face. Or not, as the case may be. Many people have, have seemed to have stayed, of, stayed at home like we did. Algie Hall stock screen looks at British disruptors, whereas uh, Todd's cover feature looks at US disruptors uh, and the digital moats that, that protect them. Uh, lots in the personal finance and funds section that they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. All the usual comments uh, from Chris and Simon and Nicole and from next week, Phil. Excellent. Thank you very much for listening and pick up the magazine, Digital Champions, has profit from disruptive technologies. We'll be back in next week. I won't. I'll be in New York. Speak soon. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.